James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. We see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, faith apart from works is dead. Our next passage, which is the sermon passage, is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their, clothes, their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, hearing um, some uh, messages particularly directed to the church. And uh, I know that over the last few weeks as well, we've had some non-believers, some non-Christians uh, here with us as well. Uh, and I wonder what it's been like for you. I wonder what it's been like for you as you've been hearing these particular messages. Um, it may feel like a, you're hearing a conversation um, that between two people and you're just kind of listening in. But I hope and pray that as we've been going through it as well, you've been hearing how Jesus speaks with his church, and especially how Jesus speaks with a church that is struggling and not doing well. Uh, and even for uh, the non-believer, for them, someone who's just curious and exploring the faith, uh, there is plenty to be learned from how Jesus engages with his church. So let me pray, and let me ask God that he will bless us 
as we hear this and bless his church as, he, as we hear this hard and difficult word today. Let me pray. <clears throat> Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us these words. We pray that you help us to hear. Help us to be people who hear and listen and obey and respond well. No matter what the challenge is, we ask that you'll help us to engage with your word. As we ask, Father, that you'll bless us in this time and help me speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For we ask these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Elizabeth Holmes, probably not a name that you're overly familiar with at this time, but she made some massive waves in the tech industry a couple of years ago. In 2004, at the very tender age of 20, she dropped out of university and began a consumer healthcare technology company named Theranos. Holmes was researching and developing blood tests that didn't require syringes and vials of blood. I went for a blood test uh, early last week and uh, there were two massive vials of blood that they needed to collect for that. She was developing technology that didn't require that much blood, but simply just drops of blood from a, finger, a, 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 a pinprick on the finger. She claimed to have patented technology that would allow screening of multiple diseases and conditions from just a few drops of blood. Well, the hype around this company was big, uh, and it, uh, her, um, over the next few years, her fame and her fortune steadily rose. In 2014, Forbes and Fortune magazine had her on the front of their covers, proclaiming her and praising her as the youngest self-made billionaire, with a net worth of around $4.5 billion. Her company, Theranos, was uh, valued at $9 billion. But here's the catch. She had built her empire pretty much in secret. In the nearly 10 years of operation, uh, in terms of how they were building their value, there were no press releases, they did not have a company website, and there were actually no research papers published for peer review on her technology. Theranos had built its reputation on lies. In 2015, a journalist at the Wall Street Journal did some investigative journalism and published a series of damning articles about her company. In the light of this, Forbes revalued her company and effectively dropped her net worth down to zero. In 2018, criminal charges were then brought against Holmes and other uh, leaders of the company, and she is presently on trial for fraud. None of her technology worked. The name she had built for her company was massive, but she had very little to show for it. Billions of dollars had potentially been, has potentially been lost because many people, many wealthy investors, were investing in the name only, in her reputation. Now, when you hear a story like that and you see how devastating it is, you sit back and you think to yourself, surely, surely the church cannot make the same mistake. Surely the church would not be so focused on externals, on the appearance of life, and think that is okay. And yet, as unbelievable as it may sound, in today's passage of the Bible, we find a church doing just that, relying on a good reputation, on a good name, but having very little to show for it. So how in the world did Sardis get into a position like this? 
What hope do they have when they are faced with the intense scrutiny of Jesus? And what might SLE Church learn as we hear Jesus rebuke them? As we've seen over the previous weeks, Jesus, as he introduces himself to each church, he introduces himself in a ways that are specially relevant to them. And this week is no different. So have a look at verse 1 again. We see that Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, generally in the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. And the number seven is generally symbolic of completion, wholeness, and perfection. The seven spirits here is referring to the complete and perfect Holy Spirit. The seven stars, as from chapter 1, verse 20, are the angels of the churches, the angels representing the heavenly connection between Jesus and the church. And so, as the one who sends the Holy Spirit and the one to whom the angels report, Jesus is introducing himself to Sardis as the one who really knows what is going on with his church. He knows and sees all. There is nothing that is beyond his sight or knowledge. Now, over the past few weeks, the news that Jesus knows everything has been of great comfort to the church. Smyrna experienced this in the middle of their persecution and public pressure. It was big comfort from Jesus to know that he, was, he knew exactly what was happening with them. Nothing took him by surprise. The, the phrase, what happened to you, is not in the vocabulary of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus knows everything in today's passage is not a comforting thing. It is uncomfortable. It is challenging. Because today Jesus shows that he can see past the outside appearance and reputation of a church, and he can see to its heart. For Jesus to know everything is exposing. They are naked before him and should be ashamed. See, Jesus knew that Sardis was a city on a hill, surrounded by three cliffs Uh, And over the years, it had built up a swell of pride. It was a a vibrant city, a place of life, an impenetrable security. Uh, The picture there you can see are the actual cliffs of Sardis. But that's an artist's impression of the city. The city didn't actually look like that. But that's roughly where the city was located. By the time John wrote the letter to uh, to to these churches, the city of Sardis had already begun to fade. It was dying, it was withering, it was a pale shadow of its former self. Now, we don't know much about who planted this church or how it grew since then, but we, what, from what we can see in this part of the letter to the church, we, we can work out that Sardis had begun to mirror the city. The church had begun to mirror the city. On the outside, it, was a, it had a vibrant reputation. It was the place to be. But in truth, it was far from alive. Jesus, who sees all and knows all, who saw past the outside, he saw past the reputation, he saw into their hearts, and what he saw was not a heart that was beating and pulsating, but a heart that was flatlining. The second half of verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. They've got a deadly reputation. Literally, Jesus says there, you have a name for being alive. Everybody knew, they, when they heard the name Sardis Evangelical Church, that they knew that this was the healthy, the growing, the pumping, the vibrant church. It was alive. But the name it had made for itself was undeserved. And this might have 
this probably would have been a profoundly shocking for the other churches to read. You remember that this is a letter to seven churches, not seven letters to seven churches. Right? Every church is reading about what every other church is going through. Right? The Ephesians, when they saw themselves named, they must have known that they had compromised their love in some ways. I'm guessing that Pergamon probably worked out that there was a bit of compromise with false teaching at Thyatira, who we heard last week. They probably knew that there was an issue with that prophetess who was in their church. But to hear about Sardis, which they thought was alive and well, that was actually dead. They must have fallen out of their seats at the announcement. This must have been utterly shocking news. Now that leads to the obvious question, right? How? How can a church look like it's alive but actually be dead? Well, let me answer that question with an illustration. Imagine if you would, for a moment, a man and his family waking up on Sunday morning and preparing for church. Now, not SLE church. This is an imaginary church, okay? It's 7 a.m. The morning is fresh. The man wakes up and he's preparing himself and his family because he knows that Sunday is like no other day. He and his family uh, walk towards, as, the, as he and his family walk towards the church building, there is an anticip, it's an anticipation in his footsteps. As he approaches the massive hall, he is ushered through a grand entrance. As he steps inside, he notices again how dark the building is. Soft lights guide him towards the pew. There's a gentle murmur from other congregation members, and then the choir and music begin to play, filling the sanctuary with a sound resonating all around him, vibrating deep within his chest. The preacher gets up the front and he begins to speak in tongues. It's a beautiful but an utterly foreign language. Smoke fills the room. His senses are dazzled, and all, as all of this happens... This man comes to one inescapable conclusion. God must be here in this building. The year is 1501. I have just described to you a typical Roman Catholic mass. The tongues spoken was Latin, a language used mostly just by scholars and the elite even in that day. The smoke was the incense filling the room. The room is dark because Roman Catholic churches were originally designed to be quite dark. All of it to evoke and bring about this appearance or this sense that God was in the building. Now, if the original description as you were listening sounded like a charismatic church, that was intentional because it's surprising how much they parallel these Roman Catholic services. Charismatic churches is intentionally or not basically copy the Roman Catholic service, I think for the same reason, to give attendees a sense that God is in the building. How can a church have a reputation for being alive but actually be dead inside? By all that kind of activity. It's very easy to see all the stuff that is happening that gives the church an appearance of being alive and well. The numbers are filling up the room to give an appearance of life. But a busy church schedule, right? Bums on seats inside the hall, lots of activity on Sunday, does not necessarily translate to life. Jesus knew their hearts and their hearts were far from him. 
Friends, be very careful if anyone ever says to you, look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Friends, the numbers lie all the time. Lots of people might be in a church, might be jumping up and down and rejoicing, but that church may also be dead. These are stark words from Jesus, aren't they, in verse 1. Uh, they are what we call hyperbole, like over-the-top words to get their attention, which is why in verse 2, he calls them to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Right? Jesus has just yelled at them, you guys are dead. He's got their attention, and now he brings them in and he tells them, you've got an opportunity to change before it's too late, before you actually die. They needed to do it as well, because in the second half of verse 2, he says, note, for I have not found your works complete in my sight, in the sight of my God. See, here's the evidence that they were dead on the inside. Incomplete works. They looked alive from the outside, but Jesus knew because of their incomplete works that they were dead. Death shows itself in this way. So next question, what works are we talking about? It's hard to know exactly what Jesus is referring to, in particular with Sardis, because he doesn't elaborate further. But the language he uses here parallels uh, other places in the New Testament. And even within the context of this opening letter to the churches, you can begin to notice that there's something interesting about Sardis or something missing from Sardis. First, as we've been reading through this letter, and as we'll see a little bit next week as well, you'll notice that a lot of the churches are undergoing persecution. There's constantly a reference to some form of persecution. Sardis, along with other churches, was in the thick of the Roman imperial cult, which is basically the worship of Caesar as God. Right? Every city, every town had immense pressure on them, self-generated and from Rome, to participate in the imperial cult and show off how much they loved the Caesar. And the more they showed off, the more they were, uh, had a reputation for um, loving the Caesar and worshipping him as God, the more funds they actually received from Rome, the more honour and prestige they received. There was lots of pressure on these places and these cities to, to worship, and Christians didn't participate in that. So there was a lot of pressure from these cities on Christians to participate in the worship of Caesar as God. You notice that there's no mention of persecution here in Sardis. Maybe it was because they were compromising their gospel message. When you preach the gospel in its fullness, you will inevitably face trouble. Smyrna and, as we'll see next week, Philadelphia knew that, right? They both faced opposition from the Jews, right, who were opposing them, I think, because of their faithful gospel preaching. And we know in Sardis that there was a very large synagogue But nothing here is mentioned about persecution from the Jews. Maybe Sardis had started preaching a less offensive gospel, an inoffensive gospel, to avoid trouble. So it might have been that their incomplete works before God was their incomplete gospel witness to the world. But there's also this kind of parallel language uh, in the book of James. So um, we had Randy read that out for us before. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26 is that famous passage about the relationship between works and faith. And James's point is clear. Without evidence of good works, we can say that your faith is dead. Right? So here the parallel of, lang- of the language 
of lacking in works and being spiritually dead. Good works, the good works that James has in mind are the good works of loving God and loving your neighbor, especially those in the church. And then James also points to Abraham and Rahab as examples. You know, both knew God and then they responded to what they knew of God in obedience and allegiance to God. James's point is simple. If you say that you have faith, then it will show in your actions of obedience. A lack of action shows a dead faith. So perhaps as well, Sardis's problem was that their faith was not showing itself in action. The church service was lively and happening, but they were Sunday Christians. Sunday morning was filled with awe and praise, but they didn't really know each other that well. They didn't go about loving each other and serving each other. And then during the rest of the week, Jesus was not on their minds, not on their lips, not in their hearts, and not at work through their hands as they served and uh, lived for him. And maybe even (laughs) combine those two problems together. Maybe Sardis was this church filled with Sunday Christianity, uh, uh, preaching an attractive, inoffensive gospel, but leading to no public witness and no godly living. And so Jesus says to them, wake up. Wake up. I know some of you need to do that right now. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to rem- what remains and is uh, getting weak. Like get those spir- weak spiritual muscles moving again. And how do you do that? You start by looking at verse 3. He says in verse 3, you start by remembering. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, so many times in the letter to the churches, they are, they are told to remember. So much of the Christian life is about remembering. Why is that? It's because we are so quick to forget. I have an odd memory for things. I, you know, I might be driving along and then a, ra- a song comes on the radio from the early 1990s and I can remember all the lyrics, right? 30 years ago. No, the 90s were 10 years. No, it's 30 years ago that the 90s were, right? 30-year-old songs I can remember the full lyrics to. I remember the, dark, the deep blue bucket hat that Ben was wearing the first day I met him 20 years ago. I remember that look. I remember the guy who sold me my first ever brand new PC was an immigrant from Hong Kong. Right? I heard the accent, I asked where he was from, he told me, and I remember getting into a conversation about that. But when it comes to bigger truths... I know I forget them often. I am someone who is prone to discouragement. And I realize that part of my discouragement is that I forget these big central gospel truths. So often, I need constant reminders of them. When I'm struggling in my faith, I know it's just the central gospel truths that I've quickly passed over. My sin-stained mind and my heart quickly forget. And that's why so much of the Christian life is about remembering. Because our sin-stained hearts cause us to forget so easily and quickly. So Jesus says, remember your gospel roots. Remember the gospel and compare it to what you've been preaching. Remember how you lived after your conversion. And when you've remembered, when, when you've done that remembering, repent. 
Turn away from your gospelless preaching and teaching. Turn away from living from yourself instead of living for God and for the works that He has for you. Turn back to the gospel you had. Get back to preaching and believing the gospel in its fullness. Get back to loving and encouraging each other in these things and keep doing these things. Keep it, right? Repent and keep these things. Hold on to them tightly and don't let these practices slip through your fingers again. Our repentance is not an easy thing, and especially for Sardis. If, if they were preaching an inoffensive gospel, remembering the gospel in its fullness might have brought back some very big uncomfortable truths. But you know what? If your gospel doesn't challenge you, if your gospel doesn't make you uncomfortable sometimes, if your gospel doesn't challenge your idols, then your gospel may not be the Bible's message. Remember and repent. If they don't, they can expect trouble. Have a look at the second half of verse 3 again. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this phrase from Jesus is pretty familiar for anyone who's read through the Gospels a few times. Jesus says it a number of times throughout the Gospels to warn believers that his second coming to judge the world could happen at any moment. It will take you by surprise if you're not ready for it. But for Sardis, this had double profound meaning. Right? So remember how I mentioned that Sardis was a city on a hill with three steep cliffs surrounding it. Now, the location of that city led them to a decent amount of pride. They were not only a wealthy city, but they boasted that their location made them invincible to invasion until they were invaded twice, once by the Persians and once by the Greeks. In both instances, the city believed that it was so invincible that it did not post guards at the steepest points of the cliffs. And so what the Persians and the Greeks did was climbed those steep cliffs at night and took the city while they were asleep. The nail in the coffin then happened uh, centuries later, uh, in 17 AD, when a massive earthquake hit the region, leaving the city in massive debt. The once wealthy and proud city was no more. By the time John wrote this letter to them, they had gone from riches to rags, caught off guard and destroyed. The church was in danger of the same thing happening. If they did not wake up, if they did not repent of their ways, then Sardis would, the church in Sardis would be caught off guard and destroyed. They had a good name for themselves, but Jesus warns, you're flatlining, you're near death, do something now or face judgment. Sardis is a church, with, this is the first time in this letter that we've met a church with nothing good to be said about it. Even verse 4, right? When you get to verse 4, that's not really a good point. That's more of a consolation. You guys are dead, but I guess you've got some people who haven't completely lost the plot. At least their faith is genuine. With this word of warning comes a note of hope and grace. And friends, this is what our Lord Jesus is like. He will say words of warning, yes, strong words of warning. But he will quickly, he is quick to promise good to those who will listen. And there are four promises that he gives here to those who are willing to hear. So the, the first promise he gives is to those who have remained faithful, and I think to those who will also repent and return to faithfulness. He promises uh, in verse 4, right at the end, 
uh, well, sorry, towards the end, that they will walk with me. This is a promise of friendship with Jesus, right? to walk side by side with him, as Adam did with God in the Garden of Eden before he was cast away. Those who are faithful will see Jesus face to face, and they will walk in sweet fellowship with him. Second, he promises those who conquer will be given white garments. These white robes in the book of Revelation seem to symbolize purity and righteousness, but the color white, so there's lots of symbolism in the book of Revelation. Colors have symbolism as well. And the color white seems to symbolize victory or conquering. Right? You see that in the reference to the white stone from Thyatira last week, right? The stone of victory given to winning athletes. You see it in chapter 6 when Jesus comes riding on a white horse to conquer. You see it in chapter 7 when believers have their robes washed white in the blood of Jesus, symbolizing that they, their sins have been conquered. If white was the color of conquering and victory, then for Sardis, this would have been highly desirable. Remember, Sardis was a, a defeated place, right? defeated in their ego when they were twice invaded and defeated financially because of that big earthquake. If the church did not repent, they would be defeated as well. Here Jesus offers a robe of righteousness and victory if they repent and trust in him. Number three, Jesus promises if they conquer that their names will not be blotted out from the book of life. Now the book of life in Revelation is symbolic of the list of names of every believer. If your name is in the book, then you can know that you are eternally saved. Jesus isn't saying that he holds a pen Right? Over a brook. He's not hovering over their names, ready to scratch it out as though they can lose their salvation. In saying their names will not be blotted out, Jesus is saying a few things. He's giving them assurance of eternal life. And he's telling them that their names in the book of life is more important than having a good name before everyone else. It's more important that your name is in the book of life than that you have a good name before everyone else. The fourth and final promise picks up on this idea as well. Jesus says that if they conquer, then he will confess their names to the Father. Again, the use of the word name there. Right? It comes up four times in this short little part of the of in these short six verses. Again, it's another word of security and assurance, and it is the ultimate name recognition that they want. Right? Everyone recognize Sardis's name? They all know. You heard the name Sardis Church, and you go, Yeah, I know who they are. But Jesus says, don't rely on that because that sort of reputation is not worth anything if you're dead. What, is a, what good is a good name if, you're etern- if, if, if it will disappear eternally? But if Jesus speaks with his father and says, imagine for a moment, Jesus speaks with his father and says, Father, look, look at this church over here in Sardis. Yes, look at them. They have been faithful. Well, that is a conversation that you want to overhear. That's a conversation you want to be a part of. That is a reputation that you want to have. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of overhearing a good conversation about yourself when people are not speaking to you. It's really encouraging. Can you imagine overhearing that conversation between Jesus and his Father about you and our church. That would be amazing. 
See, everything Jesus offers here in these promises is what they thought they had and what they wanted. And yet Jesus offers them only through himself. Not that they rely on what they had, because that was death. They needed to come back to him. These are deeply challenging words from Jesus. But they are kind words. Judgment is not a nice thing, but it is kind of Jesus to warn his church before judgment happens. They were under the impression that things were fine. We're fine. They had a good, widely known reputation for being alive. But Jesus said, no, you're dead. But before it's too late, you have a chance to turn it around. Repent. Get back to the true gospel. Get back to true gospel preaching and true gospel living. Love God, love each other, conquer, and you will receive great things. So over the past few weeks, I've mentioned we've heard many messages focused particularly on the church and on non-Christians. And I know that there have been some who have been coming and those watching on the live stream, and you know that you're not a Christian. And there are some maybe who are not sure whether or not you're a Christian. If I asked you, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Saviour? You might hesitate a little before sheepishly answering yes. To those among us, can I ask, as we've been hearing these messages over the last few weeks, what's been going through your mind as you've been hearing these messages? Again, maybe it feels like that conversation you're listening into, like being at a cafe where the table next to you is speaking so loudly that you can't help but just be listening to that conversation, even as you're trying to catch up with the person in front of you. Today's passage has been quite full on. It's been a loud conversation. And in some ways, that's a good thing, and I hope it has been, at least for you. The church has sometimes earned a bad reputation, a bad name for being judgmental. Some churches are really good at calling sinners to repent of their sin, but not calling Christians to repent of their fake religiosity. Maybe you've been hurt by these sorts of Christians in the past. You've seen the hypocrisy. Maybe you've grown up in a family of believers like this where there's just been really bad witness in your life. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry to hear that. I hope in today's passage you've heard something different. I hope you've seen Jesus just as upset and angry at the hypocrisy and the fakeness that he sees in this church. He's calling out fake, dead Sunday Christianity. He's calling out inauthentic believers. And I hope you'll see as well that at SLE Church, we are serious about not being fake alive. We're serious about not being dead people walking. We want to be a place that lives out the gospel of grace and love. And I hope you'll find among us a safe space to ask your questions and to find out more about this Jesus whom we take so seriously. Let me turn our attention now to the church, our church, to those among us who say that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. Sardis had a name for being alive, but Jesus knew otherwise. He knew that their message and their lives were basically dead, that they were flatlining and in desperate need of waking up. So let me ask us, let me ask our church, what sort of name do we have? What sort of reputation do we have? What sort of name do we want to have? It's been said in our past that our church is known as the teaching church. We are the word church. 
right? We, we focus on the Word. We, we want to make sure that people understand the Bible well and hear the gospel clearly. And let me be clear, I don't, wanna, I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I don't want to trade that away for anything else. But this good name that we have, can it potentially cover up for death and decay? We can fool ourselves into thinking because the sermons are good, because our church calendar is full, because we've got activities, because our fellowship groups are growing, right? That our Bible study attendance is solid, that we have 250 people signed up for home groups. My other church pastor friends are all envious of that. We can look at these numbers and think to ourselves, we're doing pretty well. And then we rest on that. We take our foot off the accelerator. See, I don't think we're, I don't think we're in danger as a church of uh, simplifying and dumbing down the gospel. I don't think we're at a point where we want to preach an inoffensive gospel so that we don't get in trouble with the outside world. No, we've got to be in gu- on guard against that. Yes, we need to be careful about that. But I think the bigger danger for our church is that we rest on our good name. We start to think, look at how good we're doing. We take the foot off the accelerator in our own lives because our church seems to be going well. The challenge for us today is that we should not rest on the reputation of our good teaching. Do you notice back in verse 3? Is it verse 3? No, verse 2. What am I looking at? Now, it's in verse 2. He says, wake up. When he tells them to wake up, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. He tells them to rebuild their gospel muscles, strengthening what is about to die because it's not too late. Your gospel muscles may have atrophied. they, They may have withered away, but there is an opportunity now to revive them. Now, I'm no expert in exercise or muscle rehabilitation, Um, And I've started on what I know will be a long journey of losing weight and gaining strength. But there has been one lesson I have learned early on in this process. And the early crucial lesson is this. One exercise session is not going to make up for a lifetime of bad habits. One exercise session won't instantly cause abs to appear overnight. The same is true with the spiritual lives that we have to strengthen. One act of godliness is not going to make everything better. Strengthening requires ongoing, daily work, good spiritual habits motivated by grace. And as you do these things every day, as you work, keep working, you will see change and growth in your life. Don't judge the trajectory over the next couple of days or even weeks and maybe even months. See how far you've grown over the years in your Christian walk. Now, at this point, I began thinking through, okay, what are the things that we can do to strengthen ourselves? And I started thinking through the salt teens. What do they need to do? I started thinking through Sunday YF and how it needs to keep growing in unity and loving and serving each other. I was thinking about clayers and how they need to grow in that as well. But then I thought to myself, this passage isn't about telling us what we should do. Passage is about challenging us. It's about telling us that we there is a danger there in resting on our good reputation. 
There is no retirement in the Christian life. No sitting back and resting on our past glory. A lot of you guys are quite young here in this particular service with years ahead of you. Opportunities to love and serve others. I've noticed a bit of a trend that I'm trying to rework uh, in some of my groups, some of the groups that I look after. And it's this trend that when you're at university, you serve heaps, and when you start working, you start pulling back. It's a trend that when you get married, you start pulling back. When you have kids, you start pulling back. And not only do you start pulling back, but then there's this habit of constantly looking back to the glory days of the old, of the past. If you're someone who keeps looking back on the past and remembering the good old days, right? when you used to be the youth group leader, when you used to serve and lead services, when you used to serve in different ways in church and you know, you've had to pull back from that, you get to a certain stage in life and you kind of look back on these things going, yeah, that was such a great time. If you're in that habit... And I tell you, stop living in the past. Stop living on the glory of those days. Strengthen again what may be lacking in you right now. Maybe today is the day you kickstart a conversation with each other and your leaders on how you can be serving. And for some of us, it might be a conversation on how you can be serving again. To not be satisfied with the little that you do, but to reach for the sacrificial loving and serving of each other. Because the alternative is something we cannot consider. Do not think that you can cruise on your past glory. Do not ride on the coattails on our present good name. Keep pressing on and don't let decay settle, settle into our lives. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray and ask God to help us do that. Lord, free us from the desire to rest on our good name. Help us keep strengthening our lives, encouraging each other, serving and loving you, and serving and loving your church. Help us to do that, that we might avoid the temptations and the dangers that Sardis fell into. Help us to do this for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.